Welcome to Unstructured Unlocked, a podcast where listeners discover how enterprise data and automation leaders are solving their most complex unstructured data challenges. I'm your host, Chris Wells. Hey, welcome to another episode of Unstructured Unlocked. I'm your host, Chris Wells, VP of R&D at Indico Data. And today I'm really excited to be joined by Brian Anthony, who is Chief Data Officer at the Municipal Securities Rulemaking Board. Brian, how are you today? I'm doing great, Chris. How are you doing? I'm doing really well, especially since I just got through the name of your organization flawlessly from here on after to be referred to as MSRB. Absolutely. So it is a bit of a mouthful. And, and as as our organization like to say, rulemaking is in our middle name. So um, you did you did fantastic with that. Thank Excellent. You. Well, I'll, I'll try to stay within the bounds today. <laughs> um, this uh you you uh you're more of a data personality than our our typical guest which is more of an automation personality so this is as someone who is also uh you know a data person at heart this is a really exciting episode for me could you tell us about your career journey uh to to this point and then what you all do over at the msrb sure so um again thanks for having me chris uh so i will tell you that my career it, it i started you know, 30 plus years ago as a uh, software developer, I guess at that time it was a mainframe developer, um, did a lot of COBOL and CICS and all that good stuff. Um, but I have spent most of my time in financial services in some aspect of a kind of a technical solution or a data solution. So uh, again, mentioned that um, a lot of mainframe coding to begin with, I eventually evolved to some of the client server and web stuff and then transitioned into data and have never looked back since then. Um, have worked for large financial institutions, specifically in either the securities business or in consumer real estate reporting and those kinds of aspects as well. Um, so financial services is really kind of the heart of what I do and, and data obviously is, is a great complement to that. So in transitioning, so, MSRB, the Municipal Securities Rulemaking Board, is the principal regulator of the municipal bond market. Um, so we're charged with safeguarding this $4 trillion market. Um, our mission is really to um, protect issuers and investors at the same time. And we do that a lot by regulating and writing rules for those that transact, transact in municipal security. So that would be the dealers and the municipal advisors. So, And so uh, data is a big part of, of that uh, rulemaking aspect of this as well. Excellent. Uh, for the, for, the, uh, the uh, for our uh, viewers and listeners who don't know these things, what would you what would you say are the biggest differences between the muni bond market and you know the sort of the rest of the fixed income market? So I think the biggest thing is it's a couple of things, right? I think the complexity of the offerings for municipal bonds is something that's a bit of a challenge and how they're structured. And a lot of that has to do with the the tax advantages of municipal bonds and and mm -hmm. so the structuring um, of debt that's associated with that. Um, definitely makes a difference. Uh, the complexity in the offerings is a little bit different. Um, you have a lot of sort of tiered bonds or ladder type bonds that you don't typically find in the corporate market. And then I think it's a little bit more complex because the issuers of bonds 
are uh, in the corporate market, they are subject to regulatory authority by FINRA and SEC specifically. Yep. And in our market, the regulatory authority is actually to protect issuers um, more so. So it's a little bit of a nuanced type market. Yeah, that's that's a huge difference right there. Um, so financial services is something you and I have in common. I spent far less time than you did there, but uh, did about a decade. Um, and I, in that time, I saw financial services go from being, um, I would say in a lot of ways, data backwards and technology mm -hmm. backwards to really starting to take advantage of things like the cloud, um, even ML technologies, things like that. In your time, going all the way from uh, COBOL mainframe programming to where you are today, what what do you what do you see as um, the biggest changes in financial services in terms of tech? Yeah, I, I think you're I think you're right in how you describe it. I think um, tech was was a almost sort of a necessary evil, so to speak. Yeah. Um, we did it. Um, we did, we did it because it had to be done to facilitate a problem. What I think we're seeing more of is the opportunity space with tech and with data and financial services, regulators in general, embracing that opportunity space, right? It's not just a means to an end. It is in many cases, the value proposition itself. So that's, that's really kind of the, the evolution that I'm seeing more of is really, the value proposition with tech and with data. Yeah, it's not just taking your medicine anymore, right? It's, it's actually, <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. yeah. Talk to me a little bit more about, you mentioned the regulatory space, which I think a lot of folks who spend time in tech think of as being just, you know, lawyers yelling at people and getting people in trouble. Talk to me about how regulatory bodies are embracing tech these days. Absolutely. And and our CEO, Mark Kim, described this when we had sort of a career day um, where we do have lawyers, absolutely, within the space. But we have we have data scientists, we have business people, um, we have industry experts, we have technologists. So it really is incumbent upon us to understand the landscape from our from our stakeholders' perspective. And and yeah. Writing the rules is one aspect of that, but how they do business is another aspect of that. And so we try to bring in kind of the right expertise to be able to um, facilitate transparency in this market, not just purely regulated, but to facilitate transparency in this market is probably the best way to describe that. Facilitate transparency. I like that. Uh, and speaking from personal experience, if you can get lawyers and data scientists to work to, well together, you can do a lot of really good stuff. Um, that's a Still powerful working on that, but yes. Yeah. Still on that, but yes. It's, you know, it's like uh, getting people to speak the same language. Um, Absolutely. Tough. I mean, that's really a great point. And that's where sort of I try to evangelize a bit, Chris, is yeah. I think it's, I think, it's probably easier for, let me rephrase that. I think as a data person, my goal is to be able to speak more of the business language rather than trying to have the business speak a data language, right? And so that's what I would challenge our data scientists, our data engineers as a 
potential skill, right, is learn to speak the business language. Because I do think if we can bridge those gaps, then there's a lot more that's capable for us. So that's one of the areas I would just challenge my sort of fellow data professionals as well. Yeah, I, I think that that's a that's some good news that should be spread out in the world. Um, I've seen it in my career as well, where it's both sides need to increase their literacy. Uh, Absolutely. But but really, like making the business people learn the data <laughs> lingo is like you know you know, bringing the plumber to your house and him expecting you to know which wrench to use. Like it's, it's crazy, right? Absolutely. Um, so that I think data folks need to really take on a product mindset and say like, you're my user, what's the problem? What's the opportunity? And let me figure out how to, you know, how to get you a prototype or, or get something into production based on your requirements. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Excellent point. Um, so let's let's transition transition a little bit to talking specifically about um, you talked about sort of tech now not being such a four letter word, although it is a four letter word in financial services. Um, how have you seen the use of data, say, in the last five to ten years, um, uh, change within the, the organizations that you've been a part of? So I think there's always been a big a big sort of tendency in the past that the more data that we collect, the better that we are, right? Yeah. And I think the transition that I'm starting to see is more about how we leverage the data that we have in more meaningful ways, right? It's not about, it's not about more data necessarily. I mean, I think that's happening automatically just in the age of, of technology and smartphones and, yeah. and smart devices and everything else. I think it's how we leverage the data. And I think that's that's really where we see kind of the opportunity um, with all of this is, is just how do we be smarter about how we leverage data, not just consuming it for this, consuming it and storing it. Yeah, just taking up space on tape or whatever. Um, <laughs> so that's interesting to me, the, you know, the change in mindset to how do we make you know, the most from what we have? What do you think has driven that change in mindset? Is it technologies? Is it just education? Is it just we've been around this much data for so long, we're starting to think more deeply about it. Where, where would you point your finger there? I, I think it actually may be kind of twofold. I think it is the fact that we're inundated with data and we're looking for more um, insightful, decision-ready, but insightful uses of the data. And then I think the tech is coming along to help deliver that insight faster, quicker, more meaningful. Um, but I think it's more of a craving for insights, not more data or raw data, right? And I think yeah. um, I think it's becoming, uh, I feel old, but I would say with the younger generation, I think it's starting to be more accepted, right? If you think about a, if you think about a GPS, right? And you start looking at all of this raw data, you're not getting all of the step-by-step traffic information of everybody, you're getting an aggregate state of traffic information that says it's busy in this area. It's going to take you 15 minutes. It's going to take you 20 minutes. That's the type of information that we need to make decisions on. Yeah. Not every data point that everyone else has collected on your route. Right. Yep. So I think that's the difference. Yeah. So the, uh, both the ability and the desire to package the data in the right way. Um, Absolutely. 
have changed. You used a phrase which I love and I wish I could take credit for it because it's so brilliant. Uh, but you used the phrase decision ready. Yes. Talk to me about what decision ready data looks like. So, so absolutely. So the phrase, the phrase decision ready, decision useful, I wish I could take credit for it, but it's, I heard it in a speech with the secretary, uh, with, excuse me, the chair of the SEC, uh, Chair Gensler. But it really is about the, the investor community, um, the, the business users, the stakeholder being inundated with data. So how do we present them with meaningful insights that can aid, not necessarily replace their decision-making process, but aid their decision-making process. Because we don't want to take the intuition, the, the savvy, the experience, the human experience out of this. We want to complement that. So I don't suggest that data is going to automate all of our decision-making. I think it should be a tool that's part of the decision-making. Yeah. I think the decision-ready, the decision-useful data um, means that you're getting the insights you need at the time that you need to make the decision. Kind of going back to that GPS example, if you think about it, if I'm already in the middle of traffic and that's when I get the notice that there's a traffic jam, right? <laughs> or or the, you know, that's not really that helpful for me at that time. No. So no. that's how I see sort of the decision ready or decision useful data. And again, I, I'd love to take credit for that one, but that's a chair Gensler. Um, well, Here's the here's the chair Gensler. It's a great <laughs> it's a great phrase. I think uh, it's interesting. I think financial services, especially like the back office in your investment banks, um, organizations like yourselves, and then um, you know the larger insurers, as I mentioned, there there's been sort of a renaissance in the last few years of thinking about data in this way. And it's interesting, like you know, healthcare, especially in the radiology space, got there so much earlier in the sense that. They realized it's really hard to get an AI to read, you know, radiology reports, X-rays, CAT scans, um, with the with the right amount of precision. But that read plus uh, the human expert coming in and sort of over the top making sure it's correct, like massive improvements in um, you know throughput and accuracy and all of that kind of stuff. So, you know all good things come to those who wait, I guess. Uh, it's it's our turn in financial services to get there. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the healthcare services and, and a lot of those types of tech firms or, or data firms really has helped pave the way. And in a lot of cases, it's been a little bit more of an expensive endeavor because they were kind of first to lead that effort. And so when you start, you know, go back going back to your question about you know, it being more prevalent now in financial services, just just a more conservative risk of risk averse type environment. Yeah. Now being able to leverage more proven cases, models, those kind of things. I think that's the other thing that's sort of driving adoption at this point in time. Yeah, I, I think you're right. The um the technologies have gotten better. Um and a lot of those people who failed early in some other spaces, they've made their way out into organizations. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. So just a better collective understanding of what's possible. Yeah. Great point, Brian. Um, how do you decide with the massive, you know, massive amounts of data, both structured and unstructured that are coming your way? How do you decide with all of that data, 
what the right data is to work on at a given moment. Like you could you could choose any number of projects I'm sure to be working on and you probably are working on a dozen right now, but like, how do you prioritize? You know what, this data is gonna provide the insights we need, let's spend time refining it. So that's a great question, Chris. And and I, I wish that I had a magic eight ball to get all the projects right all the time, right? Yeah. But I think part of it is really, um, it goes back to the stakeholder value. And I think um, there's a little bit of experimentation. There's some knowns, right, that you can work on that has high, okay. value, have a high value, excuse me. There's a little bit of experimentation in some cases. And I think, especially with those, right, partnering with the right stakeholders, learning early, um, the whole MVP concept, really learning early if this is viable or not, and whether or not it's going to have the desired impact for the stakeholders. Because at the end of the day, it can be a cool data project for me, but it may have zero stakeholder value. So yeah. really it's going to be the stakeholders partnering with you along the way that's going to sort of reinforce or help reinforce if you're moving along the right direction. And so yeah. again, that's why I go back to it's incumbent upon me, my data professionals, my tech professional peers and colleagues to learn and speak the, the language of the business a little bit more. Yeah. You're, you're telling me uh, F1 score isn't a, isn't a good enough uh, answer for the business? <laughs> you'd, be, so you'd be surprised. I, I, yes. I, um, I don't know that I can explain an F1 score to most of, <laughs> most of the, the lawyers and business partners that I work with. Yeah, yeah nor should you. Um, <laughs> So as a, as an R&D lead, one of the one of the mantras I repeat all the time is that engineering begins with certainty, right? You know what you need to build, you go build it. Research ends with certainty, right? We've done the experiments, we've made conclusions. How do you set yourself up as you're doing this experimentation and prototyping? How do you how do you design good experiments like where you're not going to get to the end and just shrug because you can't tell whether it was a success or failure? <laughs> So uh, the the key part to that, right? And and so first of all, I, I love that mantra, by the way. Um, and and just kind of before getting into that, I think part of what setting yourself up for good research for good researching is also um, predicated on having those good engineering practices, right? Mm -hmm. And having done that work ahead of time. So yep. all of the basic information, right? The the nice rows and columns and structured data, let's get that cleaned up as much as possible so that we don't spend an ex, you know, extraordinary amount of time every time we do a research project going back through yeah. that. So I, I love that engineering side of it and getting that squared away as much as possible so that the research is not as expensive each time you do it, yeah. um, first part of it. But I think it goes back to defining your success criteria, right? Or defining your hypothesis um, getting back to sort of the scientific notation side of this yeah. is what am I trying to prove? And if I'm going through this research process and I'm disproving my hypothesis, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but yeah. I know when it's time to, um, I know when it's time to, to say, you know what, this, this wasn't what we were looking for. And, and maybe we punt now and, and look at something else. But I really think it's a clear hypothesis 
I think it is it is also some defying um, business objectives from this as well. And if we're trending in that direction, um, and the you know the cost the the cost benefit analysis is still within our range, then let's keep going. If it's not, then let's cut our losses and uh, look at other opportunities. Yeah. So clear design up front, knowing what success looks like, and then holding yourself accountable frequently. Uh, and honestly throughout the process, right? Is that is that what I'm hearing? Absolutely. And I think honestly, it, the honesty part is a is a good aspect of this as well, because we can tell ourselves that we're, oh yeah, we're, you know, we're still on track, we're still doing well. Um, so I, I, I think that's probably one of the hardest part about this is because you're so vested in some of these things that, yeah. um, that, it's hard, that it takes a mindset to know that you know what, this was an experiment. It's okay to let it go. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone prefers a yes answer to can't <laughs> we do this? Right. But I, I think back to when I was an academic, I had a shelf with my research on it and there was a pile of things that worked. And then there was a pile of things that didn't work. And it was like 10 to one. And uh, that was a good lesson to learn early in my career. Um, all right. We've been floating out in the abstract a little bit. Let's come back to the concrete world. You've been at MSRB now about three and a half years, I think, if I remember mm -hmm. correctly. Yes. Give you a chance to brag on your your work and your team a little bit. What are you most proud of uh, in the you know that you've accomplished in the time you've been there? So what I'm most proud of and what I think I'm most proud of about the team, frankly, ha has nothing to do with technology or data. Okay. Actually, I think it has to do with the culture around data that we're helping to establish, right? And the importance around data that we're helping to establish. Um, I think the our organization has historically been, and, and with good reason, um, our intent has been to collect the information and distribute it out as quickly as possible. And our, our mindset has been hands off. This isn't our data or our responsibility. And, and there were good reasons for that. And so to begin to change that mindset that says we have a responsibility for the quality of data, that we have a responsibility for improving our stakeholder experience with this and creating those opportunities for that to be starting to be embraced by the organization. Yeah. I'm very proud of our team for um, being champions for that, right? And starting to to help distill that across the organization um, oh, yeah. is huge for us. And then we get to some of the projects that we're doing that yeah. are fun and interesting and sort of support that, but that's how I would sort of uh, classify. No, I, I love that answer. Uh, it's it's relatively easy to change technologies and you know do good project management and even product is harder. Yep. But changing the culture of an organization is like a monumental task. Um, we're not there yet, but that's we're, we're moving in that direction. Yeah, but you've got you've got a grassroots movement. Most. Yeah, no, that's that's great. Uh, talk to me. This is something that I think our audience could uh, would love to hear. Talk to me about what a healthy data culture looks like. So. <sighs> It's a great question. I, I think um, for us, it's an appreciation for um, the purpose of data. I also think it's appreciation for um, how data can be used throughout your business processes, throughout your stakeholder processes. 
um, and and beginning to embrace that. And and when we can get to the point that as an organization that we're thinking that we're incorporating that data or that insight into our decision-making processes intuitively, right? That to me begins to be a healthy um, culture around data, right? And so kind of going back to the conversation about financial services and collecting data and collecting data and collecting data, to what end, Yeah. right? To what end, right? And so to begin to realize what it is that my business, my stakeholders need from all of that information that we're collecting and provide it real time or near real time um, and begin to incorporate that into our, even our own internal processes, right? Mm. That's a healthy culture in, in my mind, a healthy data culture in my mind. Um, it's just, I, I think, I think business leaders operate on intuition and yeah. if we can complement that to support their intuition or what's even more interesting is for a business person to change their opinion because of the data, right? right? Yeah. That's another aspect of just sort of um, conveying a healthy business culture, but a healthy data culture. But uh, yeah. yeah, so that's, that's key. But yeah. And, and uh you sort of made this point implicitly, but healthy data culture is going to drive healthy data practices, absolutely, um, both upstream and downstream, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, it's interesting, you know, you're, you've been in and around the asset management world, and I can't tell you how many times I've seen folks also who have been in and around the asset management, you know, world that don't think of their data as an asset. <laughs> um, I worked with one firm a while back where, uh, you know, their grounds staff knew where every office chair in the building was and how old it was and, you know, when it was due for, you know, sort of being cycled. But they couldn't tell me, you know, how many of a certain type of bond document they had, nor did they know where to go look to answer that question. It's like, guys, this is an asset. You're you're not managing it well. Um, and that, you know, and it led to bad data practices because they didn't have a culture of valuing what they had. Absolutely. And I think what you just said is is key, right? Is that I think recognizing that data is an asset, right? And managing it accordingly is another indication of, of a healthy data culture as well. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. All right. Well let's let's turn our attention to the elephant in the room, which is yes. unstructured data. So <laughs> give me the uh, Brian Anthony chief data officer definition of unstructured data. So unstructured data. Um, <laughs> so uh, reams of information, freeform information, or uh, or textual information that it takes more work to apply context to. That that really is unstructured data, right? I mean, yeah. if if I can apply basic um, engineering technologies to aggregate something, to derive some, um, you know, some, some, some um, prediction out of, that's, that's good, but to be able to get to the context that's being expressed, right? The sentiment that's being expressed um, in sentences, paragraphs, there is so much information 
so much valuable information that is still being expressed that way. Um, and so how do we get to that decision useful, decision ready information out of this, these uh, text um, paragraphs, sentences, those kinds of you know, pieces of data? Yeah, I like that answer. I. I, I always ask this question and I always get a slightly different answer. And you're the first person to really highlight how important context is for un understanding unstructured data. Talk to me a little bit about how that plays out in what y'all do with, um, you know, bond documents, for example. Absolutely. And, and it's, it, it's, it's significant for us because the phrase that, that was used when I was joining the organization is that, we're sitting on a treasure trove of information and that could not have been a more true statement. Mm -hmm. And so let me describe for, for the listeners sort of put that in context is that we have, we have several rules where we collect data. A lot of it's unstructured data. One of the rules that um, of data that we collect is referred to as, as an official statement or a bond offering document. Okay. And this document is very much like a prospectus, but it's also very much like the reams of information that you would supply if you were doing a home loan. It's telling you about the health, uh, you know, health and welfare of the, the person who's issuing the data, the financial information, the purpose of the bond, how it's structured. It's a, oftentimes a two or 300 page legal document with very relevant information about the bond. That's one type of document that we get for every bond that's issued in the muni in the muni space. The SEC has a rule um, where there's it's referred to as a continuing disclosure rule, where as long as that issuer is participating in the bond market, they have an obligation to supply um, certain information to again convey the health of that issuer um, throughout the life of that, just making sure that that information is transparent for the issuer. All of that information comes in an unstructured document, uh, financials, uh, bond calls, um, defaults, or 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 uh, any kind of material information that might affect um, an investor's decision. All of that information comes as unstructured data through our systems, right? So we are sitting on a literal treasure trove of data, right, and a treasure trove of insights. And um, our role has been traditionally to get that information back out into the marketplace, but also in an unstructured format, right? Mm. So we collected it unstructured and then we immediately disseminated it back out in unstructured. So now you got tens of thousands of people or organizations who are all doing the same thing, which is trying to derive insights to understand the health of the bond market. Yep. So if there's opportunities for us to begin to extract and disseminate pieces of that so that we're providing insight, um, then everyone doesn't have to be doing the same thing. And actually there's probably opportunities for us to collaborate more so that we're doing different aspects of transparency. Um, so it would be interesting to see kind of how we continue to explore that. But that's that's kind of our use case around structured data. And yeah. I, I checked Chris, um, and since January of um, January of of twenty twenty, I believe that we've received somewhere around 
300,000 um, PDF documents, which is somewhere around 28 or 29 million pages of text. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a treasure. That counts as a treasure trove. That is definitely a treasure trove. So, Maybe even the mother um, Yeah. Any, any insight or any ability to unlock that content um, is really key for us. And, and really kind of the first aspect in unlocking it was just to make it searchable, right? Mm -hmm. And in a um, convenient way. So searching within the content, searching across the content. Um, so that was really kind of our first opportunity. And, and we're proud to have released kind of our Emma Labs platform, which which enables searching. Um, but but you and I both know it can go a lot further than searching. Yeah. But yeah. But even that was such a huge milestone for us as well. Yeah, no, I... That, look, you've got 29 million pages. Um, the ability to be able to find things in them without actually literally reading through everyone is a huge step, right? Like exponentially Absolutely. decreases. Um, there's a lot in what you said. So let me try to let me try to pull a few threads. Um, one, uh, I think it's really interesting. You know, you talked about context being important and you talked about like where you are in the document as part of that context. But you also highlighted an element of this, which is like, when it comes to you, whom it comes from, and, uh, you know, the relationships among the different documents, because there's some sort of central entity um, or bond offering that's common. All of that is part of the context, right? And that Absolutely. makes unstructured even harder is maintaining those relationships. Absolutely. And, and those are some of the challenges, right? I mean, it is, it is the nature of the document the metadata associated with those documents, um, and then the context, the meaning that they're conveying as well, um, that that all have significance. And how do you begin to digest, organize, and disseminate that significance, not just disseminate the documents themselves, right? Yeah, that's interesting. I'm sure a lot of folks have worked with or or seen, you know, sentiment analysis on language, but, you know, in the the financial markets, the language is all very sterile, legal. And so, you know, getting at things like how significant is this to me, that's a really tough uh, ML problem. Um, and uh, it sounds like you all have the right data to be able to solve it. <laughs> well, we have the right data as the, as the challenge. Yeah. Um, solving it is definitely, <laughs> definitely the challenge. Step two. Yeah, step two. Yeah. And, and and it's funny because you talk about um, so earlier in the conversation you talk about which problem are we trying to solve and how do we decide that and yeah. and that's an even greater challenge in deciding where we go with unstructured data because again there's so much context that's being conveyed right there's there's just just generally there's opportunities that's being conveyed and in, in this data there's risks that's being conveyed in this data mm. right and then and then there's just the status quo that's being you know and so how do we begin to dissect which problem is the most important for the industry for us to invest resources in with yep. the industry is it ESG, environmental social governance? Is it cyber risk? Is it other risks that, that yeah, all of a sudden there's a pandemic that they're not there hadn't been before, right? Pandemic, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So 
Um, and that was one area that, again, that we started taking um, advantage of the information that was being provided within these documents is, is even conveying the, the COVID impact to yeah. municipalities. But so which problem are we trying to solve and when and where are we putting our resources and where where's the industry putting its resources? There's no easy answer for, for those kinds of things, which is, you know, why it's important to partner with stakeholders um, to, to know that you're succeeding or know that you're failing and pivot, you know, quickly as well. Yeah, again, you're bringing back that that product mindset, which I love. I, I wish every data person had a product mindset. Um, uh, another thread I wanted to pull, you talked about how there, you know, there are really tens of thousands of stakeholders. And, you know, before, before you got involved and you started to, as an organization, try to transform the level of insight that you were providing, um, it's really a situation where all, you know, tens of thousands of those stakeholders have to look at all of the same stuff, right? And so if your goal is bringing a transparency, um, then, you know, making the easy stuff obvious to everybody certainly seems like it checks a big part of that box to me. Yeah, and actually, I mean, that's really sort of historically the role that our organization has played. It, it's evolved, you know, in, in our in our history, it evolved from rule writing to Emma, which is our flagship uh, sort of transparency system. So we started trying to give context and more transparency to the market. And so really this is in my mind, kind of the next evolution of that, um, which is not only transparency in terms of raw data that's being provided, but transparency in terms of insight that's being provided. And how do you, how do you maximize the resources that are available to this marketplace um, in terms of let's solve for or at least partner with with um, with appropriate firms to kind of solve some of the more common use cases. Yeah. As a regulator, we're not going to go out and try to solve the most obscure use cases, right? Let's try to solve some of the more common use cases so that others can solve some of the more obscure type use cases and value add. So it's it's a great way to, it's a great opportunity to partner with others in this industry um, for solutions as well. And and so we we kind of do some of the more common um, aspects of this and let others leverage that and then let others invest, um, you know, more private, private firms invest in sort of the uh, more nuanced type things as yeah. well. Yeah, no, that, that's a great framing. Um... People often ask me, uh, why should I care about unstructured data? And I, we, you and I have talked a lot about the optimistic answer to that, which is there's just a ton of opportunity right. um, for streamlining processes, automation, just insight, all of that. There's also the pessimistic answer, which is you're sitting on that treasure, that treasure trove might actually be a landmine, depending on what's in it. So I, yeah, we haven't talked about that at all, but do you see, you know, if, you stop doing anything with unstructured data data today, like maintain status quo. Like, what are the risks that you see for the organization? Um, I, I think the risk are very similar to the opportunities. Right, is that if you uh -huh. really want to make better decisions, then you have to walk into these decisions with your eyes open. Whether that's great news or whether that's not so great news, right? Yep. And so doing nothing, I don't have context of whether it's great news or not so great news. I don't have the opportunity to pivot early. 
I don't have the opportunity to see or contextualize this risk. Um, and oftentimes until it's too late, until it hits me sort of immediately. So I think it's not a question of whether or not it's conveying good insights or bad insights. It's in, it's conveying insights, right? Yeah. You as the business leader, as a stakeholder, make your decisions based on that insight, right? So that's more the way I see it is that, so take the, it, it's good news or bad news out of the equation at this stage and just make it news, right? And then. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh you know, people talk about data-driven versus data-influenced decision-making. You're you're definitely leaning on the data-influenced side, which um, I like a lot personally. And on the other hand, I really I really like the framing, which is you're not saying like just because we have this data, you're going to make better decisions. You could still make bad decisions, but you'll have a deeper understanding of whether you did or not and why. Yeah, absolutely, uh, and that that's huge. Absolutely. So, and, and, and one of the great aspects about that is if I thought the decision, the data was reflecting one decision, I went in another direction, at least I have something to evaluate against. That's right. right. Yep. So I think kind of the other side of this is the measurement of your decision-making process, right? That, that has to be incorporated into, into this process. But um this is why I love the data space so much, right? It's just the, the opportunities with it. And um, and it really is about the business, about the stakeholder, right? Nothing in my, in my past experience tells me that anything can influence the business of the stakeholder more than the right data in the hands of the right business people. Yeah, yep. You, you you talked about business leaders being intuition driven, and I, I think the best business leaders are intuition driven and are willing to uh, update that intuition based on the data that they've seen, right, and the decisions Absolutely. they've made. Uh, Absolutely. Well, this is great. Time is flying along. Talk to me a little bit. Um, what what do you see as the uh, as you think about the tech space for data? What do you see as like the next frontier, the next, the next horizon for um, data technologies? Yeah. So, so for me personally, I definitely want to see more continued growth in the natural language processing space, the, the ability to contextualize information easier. Um, I think one of the yeah. things I shared with you before, Chris, is I think, especially for an organization our size, the ability to leverage existing models um, without a huge investment to, so, to lean on some of the uh, some of the infrastructures that others have created so that we can take advantage of that without significant investments and being, you know, uh, sort of responsible stewards, um, for, you know, with, with what we're trusted with, I think is huge because I would tell you that I don't believe five years ago that we could be investing in this or because I don't think as an organization it would have been as fiscally responsible for us five years ago, given where the technology was, or ten yeah. years ago where the technology was. Never mind where the the heads of you know our business leaders, our stakeholders were. I think just technically speaking, it would not have been practical. Yeah. Um, so as as the technology, the infrastructure, the ability to leverage and reuse um, models and, and infrastructure and framework continues to grow. I think it becomes, I think that 
moves not only us as a regulator forward, I think it also moves small businesses forward as well, right? To be able to leverage that capability. So as much as it is about specific instances of our AI and machine learning, it's more about the infrastructure as yeah. well. Accessibility, right? Absolutely. These things. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I uh, We've talked about this before. I am fascinated by the uh, AI art generation stuff that's out there. <laughs> and it it's all very silly for the most part. There are a lot of interesting legal and ethical dilemmas that it raises. But it makes me really excited in that, you know, I've had, you know, natural language processing in my phone in my pocket for years now, but I don't really use it that much. Mm -hmm. um, and most people just sort of ignore it. But right now, you know, right now with the AI art stuff, Dolly, Stable Diffusion, you've got regular folks just interacting with AI um, every day um, and, and finding use from it. And whole new industries are going to pop up around this. Oh, I completely um, agree. And, and I think the same is going to be true in the enterprise. Like as, as our culture generally becomes more aware of what's possible with AI and what isn't, then that'll infiltrate the enterprise and, you know, government organizations as well. I, I completely agree. And I, I, and I think that's the, that's sort of the bar that I'm talking about, right? Is that, is that for organizations to be able to find useful ways to even leverage that the art generation side of this whether it's yeah. whether it's enhancing a, a powerpoint with some art yeah. because you you can't find what you were looking for in the because i have no art. imagination yeah exactly so a lot of those kinds of things i think again lowers the bar for those advancements and technologies to be incorporated into um into the mainstream yeah. right so i think that's what's uh really really exciting about the space that's great. Um, okay, this is sort of the other side of that question. Sure. Um, you having spent a career trying to communicate to business leaders about data and what's possible with data and the right way to do it in the wrong way, what do you hope uh, you know the MBA student of the future is learning about data and what's possible with data? So I, I, um, that's a great question. I just. Um, so I have a daughter who's not an MBA student. She's actually an undergrad student in animal science. Um, okay. She's in her senior year. And one of the things that she talks to me about was her use of Python in research, right? Oh. So she has no interest in technology, but she has to use technology and data languages to do her research and analyze and get results. And so what I would say to students and to the MBA students is it is an enabler, right? For whatever it is that you're doing. And even if you're not the one who's actually doing it, just recognizing that it is an enabler and either learning a little bit more about it or partnering with others to leverage it will have a great impact on what you're able to do and your level of influence as well. So yeah. that's what I would say to the MBA student. All right. Great answer. I love <laughs> it. Continue the tradition of not treating tech and data like necessary evils. Keep that going. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. Um, let's see. How, how should we wrap this up? I have a couple of closing questions I choose from. Um, 
Let me go with this old chestnut. What did I forget to ask you that I should have asked you, Brian? So, um, <laughs> so I, I would say um, that. So, if I if I think about um, the importance of what I do and the importance of our organization, um, how would I sort of classify what's next for us or what's next huh. within this? And um, as I as I think through that, because I I I do think. At least try to think with a product mindset. I try to think with um, leveraging data and tools um, to do this. I guess where I would go with this is that um, one of our strategic pillars for our organization is on public trust. Mm -hmm. And I think everything that we do as a regulatory as a regulatory entity has to continue to instill trust and more trust and more trust. Yeah. And trust is really fact-based, right? So how can we continue to reiterate the facts in this market, the facts of us as an organization, the fact of us in this industry? And that's the kind of things that that I want to sort of help drive forward for this organization, this industry is the facts, right? And yeah. so um, that's where I would sort of close. All right, that's a great question and great answer. <laughs> Didn't even need me. I should have just turned my camera off and let you talk. <laughs> oh, no, this is fun. I, I, I've enjoyed a great deal talking to you, Chris, both today and, and in past conversations as well. Yeah. So. Yeah, this was fun. Well, I'll close it out here. You've uh, you've been listening to or watching another episode of Unstructured Unlocked. My eminent guest today has been Brian Anthony, the Chief Data Officer of MSRB. Brian, thanks so much. Chris, thank you for having me. I, I really enjoyed this conversation. So. Okay. Best of luck finding all those facts. <laughs> thanks for joining us for this episode of Unstructured Unlocked. You can find all of our episodes wherever you listen to podcasts today. Spotify, Apple, everywhere. Be sure to follow at Indico Data on Twitter and YouTube. Have a good day, Automator.